Father, I want to thank you that we're in this room together. Thank you that your desire is to teach us and our desire is to learn. So uh, would you open our hearts so that we can understand the process by which you transform us. And we'll thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So before we get to Judah, to frame this tonight, I just want to tell you a little bit of a story. Who's been to Rwanda? Anybody in the room been to Rwanda? Our church has pretty profound partnerships with the country of uh, Rwanda. And so I've traveled there a bit. And if you know anything about Rwanda, you know that in the early 90s, Christianity Today published articles about Rwanda as the, with a definite article, missionary success story in all of Africa. 90% of Rwanda uh, claimed faith in Christ. And then, of course, in 1994, there was a genocide where Christians were killing each other to the tune of 800,000 to a million dead in 100 days. It was a tribal war between Hutus and Tutsis. And uh, there were Hutu pastors that said to Tutsi neighbors, come into our church and we'll let you hide in our church. And then the pastor barred the doors and lit the church on fire and killed all the Tutsis. And, you know, when you hear that, my hope is that you ask the question, what can we learn from this? And I'll tell you what we can learn by taking you to uh, Matthew 3, when John the Baptist shows up on the scene. He started to baptize people who are confessing their sins, and then he sees the Pharisees in verse 7, and he says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. And now what? This is very important, verse 9. Do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. I say to you, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And then John goes on to say this, really, really important. The point is not your affiliation. And if you have affiliation with institutional Christianity or organized religion, and you have a doctrinal statement, and you articulate the doctrinal statement, but you ne it never translates into your life, then you're, you're missing it entirely. You're just missing it entirely, right? The point is not affiliation. In fact, affiliation with, without transformation leads to tribalism, which is exactly what happened in Rwanda. And they ended up killing each other to the tune of a, almost a million people, 800,000 to a million people. And I will just say to you, as your friend, though I don't know you that well, we are in an increasingly tribal culture. We are. Our culture at large is tribal, right? Particularly driven by politics, but more than politics. Uh, sexuality, sexual ethics issues also. I get it. That's what people do all over the world without Christ. What so grieves me is that the church is now taking its cues from culture and becoming equally tribal. Does that make sense? So very often among people of faith, there's kind of this litmus test. And if you believe exactly what I do, then you're in my club. But if on one point we differ, I go to Facebook, I label you a heretic, and it starts a doctrinal war. Happens all the time. I mean, a week did not go by during COVID where we didn't get a letter from somebody in our church. It's a big church, so it's to be expected. But it's like, why are you following the state with their mask mandate? Uh, you're just, uh, you're, you're worshiping the idol of the state. And then when the state said, take the masks off, and we did, 
other people wrote, how come you're not following the science anymore? You're, now you're just giving in to the Republican agenda. And it's like, I want to kill all of you. <laughs> because you guys, you don't know what's happening, but you're being used by the culture, and you're allowing the tribalism that is defining our culture today to define you as people of faith. That's exactly what happened in Rwanda. We want to avoid that, right? And the way to avoid it is to take our cue from Judah. And here's why. Judah is a child of Abraham. So, is he saved? Yes. Does God love him? Yes. Does God have a plan for his life? Yes. Does God want to bless him? Yes. Is he bearing fruit? In no way. Like, if you go through the stories of God's chosen family, and remember, chosen isn't this, oh, I'm choosing you to lift you out of here and take you to heaven. That's a byproduct, man. You're chosen, remember? Chosen to bear fruit. Chosen to bless the world. Chosen to display joy, peace, patience, mercy, justice, crossing social divides. And so Abraham is chosen to display the character of God through his life to bear fruit. Instead, he lies about the identity of his wife. He sleeps with a maid. He gives birth to a son who grows up to demonstrate unabashed favoritism to one and his wife unabashed favoritism to the other when they give birth to twins. We're talking about Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes a liar, a thief, a, a, a fearful, anxious guy, always looking over his shoulder, afraid he's going to get killed for the crimes he's committed. He marries four women. That should be a problem. If it's not a problem, at least it's no fun, right? And, and then uh, has 12 sons who, for example, when their sister is sexually violated by someone in the town of Shechem, the brothers are so mad about this that they take vengeance and they say to the men of Shechem, yeah, you want to intermarry with us, no problem. Just circumcise all the men so that you may like us, and then we can begin to intermarry. And so the whole village is circumcised, and then you read it. It's in Genesis 34, I think. On the third day, while all the men were in pain, what did the brothers do? They came to town, and they killed everybody. They killed all the men. They took the wives for themselves. They took the wealth for themselves. They, they killed, they stole, and they, ex they, they uh, uh, exacted vengeance on an entire village for the sin of one man. God's chosen people? Yes. Loved by God? Yes. Called to display the life of God? Yes. How are they doing? C minus? No. Not even. It's a, it's a total disaster. And it doesn't get any better by the time we get to uh, Judah. By the way, the picture tonight is taken in Austria, because in Austria, if there's avalanche territory, they tell you. In my state, they don't tell you. It's like in America, it's like you're on your own. And I, Judah is in avalanche territory. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like spiritually, he is flaming out and he doesn't even know it. So first of all, we're going to look at his failures and I'm going to just, maybe even for the sake of time a little bit, I'm going to paraphrase some of this. But the first thing you see 
you pick up, if you have a Bible, in Genesis 37. If you don't, just listen, but you all know the story. Jacob lives in a land, uh, chapter 37, where his father had sojourned, land of Canaan. So they're, ba they're back in the promised land. Here's the records of the generations of Jacob. When Joseph was 17, he was pasturing flock with his brothers, along with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. And then, here's the key to the whole story. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, right? So, remember, there were four wives. What was the, this is like Bible trivia night. What was the favorite wife's name? Anybody? Rachel. You don't get milkshakes from me. You just get the pride of the right answer, okay? So, um, Rachel. Rachel gave birth to two. What are their names? Joseph and Everything hinges on that, okay? So we, that sets the story. And they're the youngest. They're the youngest. So uh, imagine who in the room is the youngest. Some of us are. A couple of us are. Yeah. Imag imagine if you're the youngest being given management authority over all your older brothers. How would that play out? N not too good emotionally, right? But that's exactly what Jacob does. Joseph's put in charge. And so he's bringing back a bad report. And then uh, it's unabashed favoritism. Joseph gets better clothing, right? He gets this amazing coat. Everybody else shops at Goodwill, whatever. And, and so then it says this, verse 4, they hated him. So, so this family called to display the courage of God, they hate Joseph. Second, Joseph has a dream, and he tells it to his brothers, and Joseph doesn't have a lot of emotional intelligence, in my opinion, because if I had this dream, I wouldn't have shared it with my brothers. This is what he says. Hey, guys, come here, come here. I mean, they're working on the heat, and he's in management, right? He says, come here, let me tell you what happened. I had this dream, and uh, we were all binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf stood erect, and all yours bowed down to, to me. Isn't that cool? And it says they hated him even more. And then he had another dream, and he said, oh, guess what? In my last dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. Isn't that amazing, right? And so this animosity uh, develops. The word hatred is used twice. The word jealousy is used once. The word rage is used once. God's chosen family. Keep that in the back of your mind. So then, um, Joseph goes home. Another day, 10 brothers working on the field. Benjamin also stays home because he's the other favorite child. Joseph goes out to check up on his brothers. Verse 18 of Genesis 37. And they say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Throw him into a pit. And we'll say a wild beast devoured him, and let's see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this. Reuben, by the way, is the oldest, and the oldest generally in birth order stuff is kind of the hero, right? They're always the one that's taking the moral high road. And so Reuben wants to save him. But they, what they do is they strip him, they beat him up, and they throw him in a pit, and they're in the middle of the desert. And then, this is stunning to me, it says, verse 25, then they sat down to eat a meal. Now, if you just let that sink in for a minute, how many of you have ever had an argument 
or some like stressful moment and the degree of stress was such that you didn't even want to eat. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me before, right? These guys, no problem, man. We're going we're gonna to strip our brother, beat him up, throw him in a pit, dip his coat in blood so that we can go home to dad and make dad think that he's dead. And what's next on the agenda? Let's have a picnic. Makes perfect sense. So they're having a picnic, and then along come this caravan of Egyptians, and Judah, Judas, it's Judah's idea. What does he say? Does anyone know? Hey, why should we kill him? Let's sell him out as a slave. And then what cracks me up is he says, let's sell him as a slave. After all, he is our brother. Like he's doing some kindness to him, right? So then Joseph is sold into slavery, boom, off to Egypt. We could do a whole series on Joseph, but we don't have time. Judah then, plot continues, Judah goes home with the other nine brothers. Here's Joseph, right? And, you know, what do they do? They show up and they say, hey, um, want you to know, uh, we found this coat. Whose is it? And, of course, Jacob looks at it. He says, it's Joseph's coat. There's blood all over it. A wild beast has devoured him. And then it says, Jacob tore his clothes, put ashes on his head, and mourned for many days. And then it also says, the brothers rose up to try and comfort him. Verse 35. Now, listen. If I really wanted to comfort Jacob, what would I do? I, this is what I'd do. I'm Judah. I'd say, hey, okay, I'm glad you're sitting down, Jacob, because I know you think he's dead, but he's not dead. It's just a big joke. We sold him as a slave. He's down in Egypt. He's alive. We're going to go get him. Don't worry about it. We're really, really sorry. We just can't bear to see you grieving. But they could bear to see him grieving because they hated Joseph that much. See, what you see in the brothers, hatred, hatred, jealousy, rage. Now they sell him as a slave, human trafficking, and hard-heartedness because why? They could solve their dad's grief problem just by coming clean. And they don't. You think, that's pretty messed up. Well, it gets worse, okay? Go to chapter 38, and what happens is this. Judah uh, gets married, and in a very short time, uh, three sons, and by verse 6, his sons are old enough to marry. So in uh, Genesis 38, 6, Ur is Judah's firstborn, and the woman who marries her is named Tamar. And this cracks me up when I read my Bible. But Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. Boom, God killed him. And I'm thinking, God killed him, but not anybody else. I mean, he, what did he do, I wonder, that he's dead, right? And then uh, the second son, Tamar, marries. And according to culture, when Tamar gives birth, that son will inherit the estate of Ur the first son, all right? Onan is bummed about that, so he spills his seed on the ground. God is bummed about that. Boom, he's dead, right? So Judah has three sons. 
First one marries Tamar, he's dead. Second one marries Tamar, he's dead. Judah's like this. She's the black widow, man. I, and, and goes to Tamar and says, don't marry my, my youngest son, he's too young. And pretty soon it becomes apparent to Tamar that she will never marry, which in that culture is, it leaves her zero options for, for livelihood, right? So what does she do? Well, after a considerable time, verse 12, Judah's wife dies. And then one day, Judah is going down to this place called Timnah to get his sheep sheared, right? And if you know the story, uh, Tamar hears that Judah is going to be in Timnah. What does she do? She dresses up as a prostitute, which means like she's got a veil on so that her face is covered. And Judah sees the woman who's a prostitute and says to her, hey, um, here now, verse 16, let me come into you. Not knowing it's his daughter-in-law, right? I mean, I'm just going to stop here and say, you can't make this stuff up. This is amazing literature. This is Shakespearean stuff, right? It's just, it's ridiculous. Here now, let me come into you. Not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. She says, what do you give me? He says, young goat from the flock. She says, can you pay me? He says, no. Then I need a down payment. He says, well, what do you want for a down payment? She says, I want your passport and your COVID vaccination status sticker, right? In other words, I want your ID. She wants his ID. It's his ring and his staff, but it's his ID. So he gives her his ID, sleeps with her, leaves, goes home, says to his servant, take two goats, go pay the prostitute. The servant goes back. She's gone. The servant comes home with the two goats. Judah says, why do you still have two goats? He says, because I couldn't find it. There isn't a prostitute in Timnah. Judah says, don't worry about it. It'll blow over. Yeah, no, it doesn't blow over. Watch this. Uh, it came about, verse 24, three months later, Judah's informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. So what does Judah say? Bring her out and let her be burned at the stake, verse 24. Right? He's holy. That's the law. And then, while she's being brought out, she sends a messenger to Judah. Tamar says, hey, before you light the fire, uh, just know that I'm pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. And it's the staff and the rod, his ID. And then he says, let her live. She's more righteous than I because I didn't let her marry my third son. So then she delivers. And she delivers twins. And one of the twins is named Perez. And I don't know if you guys know the story or not, but if you go through, if you could turn to Matthew and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there's three women named in the genealogy of Jesus, which first of all is unheard of anyway. Women aren't named in genealogies. But three women are named. The first one is, is, is Tamar. The second one is Rahab the prostitute from the book of Joshua. 
And the third one is the woman that David slept with um, illicitly, Bathsheba, right? Now, what is God trying to say to us in that story? Listen, how often do we look at someone, label them, and then presume them to be outside the scope of God's activity or beyond redemption? I want to tell you, it happens all the time, right? And what God has gone, gone to great lengths to show us in the text is this. I fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Consider your calling. Consider your collective calling, our collective calling. Who does God choose? Here's the good news. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many wealthy. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak to con con confound the strong. And Paul himself self-identifies as the chief of sinners. He says, before I met Christ, I murdered Christians. So many people who we deem to be outside the scope of the gospel, God is saying, wait a minute. In, right in the middle of our own depravity, God is still writing a redemptive story. In this case, a man sleeping with his daughter-in-law, presuming her to be a prostitute, not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law, that's where the line of Christ comes from in the, in the Bible. So let's sink in here so that we kind of allow ourselves to believe that God is deeply at work way beyond the walls of our moral, upright, affiliated communities of faith. There's people who are lonely and hurting and making terrible decisions, and God's at work in their lives. So that's, that's where Judah finds himself. That's where the brothers find themselves. Filled with hate, filled with greed, filled with deceit, filled with self-righteousness, claiming false moral high ground. And so then the question is, how are they transformed? If we go back to tonight's slide with the avalanche thing, can we do that? How are they transformed? We're going to look at several things. And the first thing is it's pretty simple, hunger. There's a famine. Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt, and he said to his sons, why staring at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some from that place, that we may live and not die. Uh, what does uh, Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. What does uh, the preacher say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9 and 10? God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. In other words, like what's going to motivate me to draw near to Christ? What's going to motivate me for this journey that will result in my transformation? What's going to motivate me? It's for me, in my own, I look at my own journal, it's always hunger. It's always hunger. I'm hungry for meaning because I'm bored. I'm hungry for forgiveness because I failed. I'm hungry for, for direction because I'm at a crossroads. I'm hungry for intimacy because my wife and I are having a problem. I'm hungry for healing because I went to the doctor and I got a bad report. And, and people beyond our walls, I'm telling you, are hungry. Hungry for a world where kids can go to school without fear of getting shot. We may have different solutions, but everybody wants the same outcome. We want peace. We want safety. We want intimacy. We want marriages that work. We want joy. We want generosity. We want safe borders, but we don't want kids in cages. We want, we want people to have dignity. We want everyone to know that they're made in the image of God. You know what we want? We want shalom. 
Like, not just us, everyone. And man, if we could key into that, for me, that changes my, my whole frame of evangelism. Because the starting point is this. God wants to meet the deepest longings of your heart. And if you follow your hunger fully and don't settle for substitute satisfactions along the way, your hunger followed fully will bring you to the feet of Christ and transformation. So this is a message that we need desperately in our culture because we want to tap into the hunger that people have. And I want to say to you then too, lean into your hunger. We've been taught sometimes that our desires are wrong. Our desires are not wrong. We lean into our desires. We just want to make sure that we fulfill our desires in the ways that God intends, not in unhealthy ways. Because all along the way, there's substitute uh, appetite fulfillments that promise life but ultimately destroy. But I lean into my desire, and my desire for hope and justice and intimacy and joy and meaning and, and reconciliation those hungers lead me to Christ. So there's a famine. Then and now. Right now it's not a famine of food, though it may be. Right now it's a famine of meaning. It's a famine of justice. It's a famine of safety. It's a, it's a famine because uh, families don't meet at the Thanksgiving table anymore. All the members. Because they can't. Because there's broken relationships. That's our famine. Lean in. Because Christ is the answer. So we, we start with hunger. And then these guys go down there. And by now, Joseph has been elevated to this position of prominence where he's distributing grain uh, to people from foreign lands who are going to buy grain, right? So verse 6 of 42, <clears throat> Joseph's the ruler over the land, selling to all the people. And Joseph's brothers come in fulfillment of the dream. They bow down. Joseph sees his brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he says, where did you come from? They say, we came from the land of Canaan. Joseph said, you guys are spies. You've come to look at the, at the undefended part of our land. And then watch this. Read verse 10 if you have a Bible. They said, oh, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. If, you, if it's your Bible, underline that. Because that's ridiculous. I've circled it and written ha, ha, ha right beside it. Like, we're honest men. What is it? You know what that means? We're affiliated. We're children of Abraham. So we're good. We attend church. So we're good. No. <laughs> Affiliation is not fruitfulness. I went to Talbot Seminary down there in Los Angeles and one Sunday, uh, a friend of mine who was working for YWAM, actually, he, uh, he said, hey, we're going to pick up some women from a halfway house. They're leaving prostitution. And they've come to Christ, and they want to go to church with us. So they pile in the back of my car, you know, uh, these three women. My wife's in the front seat, and we go into this church. And it's a, if I told you a name, you'd all know it. It's a big, huge church in Los Angeles. You know, people raising their hands. It's all Bible, solid Bible. And these women aren't there two minutes. And both of them, they said, we got to leave. we got to leave. And so we left. 
And I didn't understand it. We got back in the car, and the first one said, I saw three clients, and I don't want to see me. And the other one said, yeah, I saw one too. Are you hearing me? We think affiliation and saying we have Abraham as our father means we're, we're honest men. No. <laughs> but the good news is God will reveal our own brokenness to us. And that's what happens in this story. So what happens? He says, oh, no, you guys are spies. And then they say, oh, no, you know, we were 12 brothers. One's no longer alive. That's the one that they're talking to, but they don't know it. The other one's at home because our dad wouldn't let him come down. But our dad's also alive. And then Joseph says in verse 14 and 15, here's how I'm going to test you. You won't go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one that he may get the brother. And then in the, when the story ends, instead of leaving everyone and sending one home, he sends everyone home and keeps one, keeps Simeon, keeps one brother there. So they go home. And then on the way home, look at this. It says this, verse 20, Joseph says, Bring your brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And then on the way home, they said to one another, we are guilty. Now, stop right there. It's very important. Are they spies? No. So are they guilty of that to which they're being charged? No. So they would have had every right in that moment not to say we are guilty, but to say what? If they were Americans, I'd tell you what they'd say. I want to see a lawyer right now because I am not a spy and I'm going to prove it I'm going to sue you for defamation of character, and you're going to pay a price, buddy, and that's the way it's going to be. But instead of, like, seeing themselves on the moral high ground, though the, the charge of being a spy is not true, the larger trial causes them to say what? We are guilty concerning our son. And so what you see here is confession. You see confession. And then you ultimately you see curiosity as well because on the way home uh, when they go to feed their animals the money that they took to Joseph to buy the grain is in their sack. And they ask the question in verse uh, 28 what is God doing to us? Uh, let me just say to you right here. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin we make God a liar. We deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin what? God's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. This is the moment when the turning begins. It always begins, always begins with confession. Has to. If, the, if I don't own my stuff, I can never be healed. And yet we live in a culture very often where we're, there's kind of a prevailing blame culture. Do you know what I mean? Like I am, like I am who I am, because of external circumstances surrounding me. That's why I did the bad deed. That's why I have this phobia. That's why I have this addiction. And then, and then we fixate on systems external to ourselves. Let me tell you, systems external to ourselves contribute to our, own, to our own dysfunction. I totally get it. But if I could leave you with one message tonight, it's this. Own your stuff. you got to own your stuff. Because that's the only path to freedom. All of us in the room who are parents know this. 
We disciplined our kids. I wanted my son, when he, when he bit my daughter, because she took a Lego of his, I, I said, did you bite your sister? And this is just like the garden in Genesis 3. Because there's two answers. Yes or no. So I asked him, did you bite your sister? He said, she stole my Legos. I said, I didn't ask whether she stole your Legos. I asked if you bit your sister. He said, Dad, you would have bit her too if she stole your Legos. And I had to ask him four times before he finally owned it. But maybe the most important thing I could do as a parent when my kids were young was teach them to own their stuff. Don't blame extenuating circumstances. And so here's the brothers confessing and beginning to ask the question, what is God trying to say to us here? Now, the next thing you see is progressive discipline. What does that mean? Well, verse 43, or chapter 43, verse 1. Famine was severe in the land. So they have more to learn, so the famine remains. And they run out of grain, and Jacob says, go buy some more grain. And Judah says, verse 3, the man said, we can't go down there unless we bring Benjamin. And then Jacob says in verse 6, why did you even tell him you had another brother? uh, Judah says, the man asked us specifically, do we have another brother? Do you have a father? We answered his questions. How would we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother? And then look at Judah growing up in verse 8. What does he say to his father? Send Benjamin with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones, I, Judah, will be security for Benjamin. Hold me responsible for him if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame before you forever. Let me just ask the question here. Does Jacob still have a favorite son? Yes, absolutely. What's his name? Benjamin. And so if Judah hated Joseph, wouldn't it make sense that Judah would also hate Benjamin? But what you see when you really look at the story here is you see that the tide is beginning to turn because what does Judah say? He says, listen, let me take Benjamin and I will bring him home by my life. Like, he's beginning to own his own responsibility. But it happened because God didn't give up, right? Progressive discipline. Look at Amos 4. God says, I sent a drought. Then I sent a famine. Then I sent a plague. And you guys never would listen. You never, ever would listen until the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, and then, boom, you begin to pay attention. And so it's better that we listen early, right? Hebrews 12, receive discipline early so that you could learn early and move on. But God is faithful to continue to put us in situations that transform us. So now they're going to go down there with more money and gifts to buy more grain and take Benjamin. So they go down, and then the plot really thickens because when they, when they arrive, they come near to Joseph's house, verse 43, and uh, Joseph says, hey, these... 11 are going to dine with me today, right? So they come to the lodging, and then they bring the money, and they said, oh, we brought more money. And Joseph says, don't worry about it. God's been good to you. And then they go into the house, and Joseph says, "Uh, how's your father? Is he still alive? 
and they bow down again. In verse 28, they say, oh, your servant is well. He's still alive. They bow down again. And then he sees Benjamin, which is his only full brother, right? And Joseph says, are you the, the, the youngest brother of whom uh, your brother spoke? And he says, may God be gracious to you. Then Joseph goes out and weeps. He's deeply moved. Then he comes back. Now, now watch this. Remember, Benjamin's still the favorite, right, in that family. Now they're in a foreign land, and uh, Joseph serves a meal. And so everybody gets a burger, let's say, okay? In and out, double, double. So 11 brothers. One for you, 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 one for you. One for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you. Now we're at 10. Benjamin, five double doubles. Boom. Are you kidding me? In a foreign land, he's still favored. This is ridiculous, right? So we have a nice meal. It's all good. And then they're going to head home. And this is where you get the solidarity. Watch what happens. They're heading home. Joseph says, fill the men's sacks with food and the money again. And he says, put my cup, put my cup, right, in Benjamin's pack. Put my cup in Benjamin's pack. So, you know, everybody's got their pack. And they're leaving. And if it's Disney, this is the end of the story, right? And there's some song about being brave or something like that. And everybody lives happily ever after. But it's not Disney. It's the Bible. The cops come, right? Overtook them and said, uh, why are we repaying evil for good? Someone stole Joseph's cup. And they're like this. Verse 7. Why would you say this? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money we found, we brought back. Why would we steal silver and gold from your Lord? In fact, we're so convinced of our innocence. Verse 9, whoever has the cup, if you find the cup, let that one die. And we'll stay as slaves. And then he said, no, we're going to do it a different way. He with whom the cup is found will be my slave. The rest of you will go. So then they all lower their pack off their animal. And they, there's a search Innocent, innocent, innocent. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Come to Benjamin, and he takes his pack off the thing, and what happens, of course? <laughs> Boom. And then, watch this. If the brothers still hate Benjamin, is this not a perfect moment? They'd be like this. We didn't even have to do anything. He was stupid enough to steal the cup. He's going to go home and serve that other guy forever. We'll just go tell dad there's nothing we can do. Instead, what do they do? They tear their clothes. Why? Solidarity. You know what I mean by that? It says in Colossians 3, put on a heart of compassion. This is in the subset of commands under the umbrella, clothe yourself with Christ. What does compassion mean? The, the word literally means to suffer with. So here's the deal. I'm identifying with the suffering of Benjamin here. Why? 
Watch this. Because if the one is suffering and the rest of us go free, it's not okay. God's vision for shalom, by its very nature, shalom says this. The shalom of God means that my peace never comes at your expense. The shalom of God means peace begats peace, begats peace, begats peace until the kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so shalom says, no, I can't go home without Benjamin. So Judah goes back, appears before Joseph, and gives this speech, right? So uh, they come and they say, Judah says first in verse 14, he says, listen, all of us will stay as slaves because they can't bear to go home and see dad, right? What does Joseph say? He says, oh no, only that one is staying. And then, almost ironic, the rest of you go to your father in peace. So then Judah speaks. What does he say? He says, oh, uh, I'm reading verse 18. Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word to my Lord's ears. Don't be angry with me. You're equal to Pharaoh. <clears throat> you asked, do you have a father or a brother? We said, we have an old father, a little child. Then you said, bring him to me. We said, uh, we cannot leave, the lad cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, his father will die. But you said, unless the youngest brother comes down, we couldn't see your face again. So it came about when we went to your servant, my father, and told him the words. Our father said, go back and buy more food. We said, we can't go without the youngest brother. And my father said, verse 27, which is a cut to all of 10 other brothers. He says, listen, my wife only bore me two sons. One's dead and the other one's at home. I don't want to risk losing him. And then, if you take this one from me, says Jacob, and harm befalls him, I will die in sorrow. Then, here's the crux of the whole book, you guys, verse 30. Therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since the lad's life is bound up in his life, when the father sees the lad is not with us, he will die, and we will bring the gray hair of our father, your servant, down to the grave in sorrow. I, Judah, became security for the lad. I said, if I don't bring him back, I will bear the blame forever. Here's my request, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go with his brothers. How would I go to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I would see the evil that would overtake him? I'm staying. Let him go. Why does that matter? Because Jesus said in John 13, 34, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then Jesus went on, and this is what he said. He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you, what? Vote Republican? Fight for gun control or not? Come on. Fly higher, people. Here's how, this is the proving ground for our faith, not our political posturing. God hates that stuff. Because his kingdom, Jesus said it, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. So let's fly higher. 
By this all men will know your disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. Oh, and by the way, greater, John 15, 12, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for a friend. And that's, here's Judah. Do you understand? Judah is Jesus. That's why the line of Christ comes through Judah. Because Judah is the picture here of the essence of the gospel. Someone laying down their life that we might know freedom. It's incredible. Oh, and where did Judah learn to lay down his life? Where did he learn it? Oh, you know, BSF. It's awesome. You know, you go to Bible study, you fill in, fill in the blanks. You learn stuff. Listen, I'm not being dismissive of Bible study. I teach this stuff, right? But please understand, we're not transformed by sitting in here and listening. What did James say? Don't be hearers of the word only who deceive themselves, but be what? Doers of the word. The real proving of their faith is not in here. It's what happens when we go out there. And even more significantly, when we go down the mountain into the valley of crime and race and incredible loneliness and kids trying to commit suicide because they're so confused sexually and so lonely and have such body image issues and greed and class wars and political wars. How in that setting is the gospel going to take hold? When you look like Judah, that's how. When, when we're willing to lay down our lives. So th this is my favorite story in the Bible for this exact reason, right? This guy, in the end, gets it, and he's not even trying to get it. He's just taking a next step as the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. And he begins to look more and more and more like Jesus. My prayer is that'll be our story as well. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for Judah because... There's a before and after picture here that is more stunning than any fitness ad, actually. It's, it's incredible to me that you chose a family so full of dysfunction and yet so comforting as well, knowing that our dysfunction, our pain, our fear, our pride, our greed, you see it, but you're relentlessly committed to our transformation. And we'll put circumstances into our life that teach us to love and teach us to forgive and teach us solidarity and compassion and prayer. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us through the trials we face so that these trials might shape us to be more like you. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as you transform us. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen.